Hey everyone, it's Rich Lombino, therapist and lawyer. Welcome and thanks for joining me. In this podcast, I explore topics for maintaining good mental health through expanding your knowledge, developing insight, and creating and sustaining behavior change with the goal of improving the quality of your personal and professional lives. All right, let's get started. Today's topic is finding justice for survivors of sexual abuse. And my guest is John Rafferty. John, good to have you here. Rich, thanks so much for making time to talk about this important topic. Yeah, so how about you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm a partner at a law firm uh, called Gothrop Greenwood in the suburbs of Philadelphia. I studied philosophy in college. I served as a naval officer in the Pacific Theater. And then I pursued research in Latin America through the Fulbright Fellowship Program. Um, After working with survivors of exploitation, both in the Middle East and in Latin America, I decided to focus my legal practice uh, on working with survivors of trauma and exploitation. Okay. Now, you have a lot of experience in this area. Can you tell us maybe a little bit about what you know, what drew you to to work with this popu- important population and what inspired you? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think a lot of it has to do with recognition of many of the privileges that I've had over the course of my life uh, to grow up in a stable family with two parents where my needs were provided for, uh, as well as, you know, the opportunity to have some education paid for by my parents, whether it was, you know, private school or, um, you know, assistance with college. And recognizing those privileges, I think, has made me acutely aware of those who don't have those same privileges, those who um, are left behind in so many ways. And I think early um, in my you know, career as a naval officer, I began looking for those around me who were uh, in just sort of situations where they couldn't get out, you know, where they couldn't get ahead. And mm-hmm. very quickly, I began to see that folks who are working day in and day out but not paid for that work right they're in conditions of you know basically involuntary servitude um that they're sort of a, a prime example of folks who can't get ahead who no matter how hard they work and how hard they try they're not going to be able to accomplish their goals and dreams because um the system is stacked against them because they're sort of you know victims of coercion and deceit and trickery um, such that they're in this you know situation where you know they can't ever get out of the hole that they're in um, and so that was something that you know particularly bothered me when I was in the Middle East serving as a naval officer and I volunteered with a local organization that helped a lot of those workers um, get ahead helped a lot of those workers take advantage of their rights um, and then that was something that once I left uh, the Naval Service, I continued to focus on during my time in law school. Well, of course, thank you for your service, uh, especially in this important area. And really, you're talking about people who are, uh, it sounds to me, like just powerless and and probably hopeless most of the time. And also, for you, uh, not taking anything for granted in, in your life and, and recognizing the the privilege that Absolutely. that you had and the luck of being born you know where you were and and where your you know the socioeconomic status uh, that you grew up in and which you had nothing to do with uh, right 
so lucky, so lucky. I mean, I, I, I think of that every day that I just was afforded so many opportunities. I mean, both academically within my family and, you know, extracurricularly to develop myself um, and to achieve my goals that, you know, so many people don't have. And, you know, you were talking about sort of the, the, the lack of hope, the lack of vision um, because of the circumstances that people find themselves in. And, you know, what has become so clear to me over my time, you know, working with people in situations of exploitation is that that's not just the case for those who are, you know, in conditions of involuntary servitude where they're working, not getting paid, but it's also the case in so many relationships and particularly where um, there's any sort of, you know, sort of sexual activity in those relationships that there can be extreme power differentials and power disparities that can lead to um, similar exploitation where as a result of coercion and trickery, um, people are doing things, victim survivors are doing things that they would never do otherwise and that that sort of alters their life substantially. Right, right. And, you know, we could talk about sort of uh, transition there into sort of the symptoms of the trauma that they're facing, uh, which, you know, in many ways you could say is PTSD. And I, I'd love to hear um, some of what you what you've seen, and uh, I also wanted to note that you do have some clinical training as well as your legal training. So you're really in a unique position to be able to, I don't know, increase your empathy towards what they're experiencing when you're actually practicing law with them, and have although you've never gone through what they've gone through, uh, just have some perspective and spending so much time. So I. You know, flashbacks, uh, heightened state, uh, like such as little noises and movements can cause an, an overreaction, negative intrusive thoughts, uh, rumination, just can't get the thoughts out of their head, challenges in being in or, or finding romantic relationships, lower self-esteem, uh, blaming oneself, distressing dreams, shame you know, a decrease in the level of functioning in personal life, professional life, and obviously many, many more. I mean, those are some of the, some of the symptoms that, uh, in working with, with, you know, survivors of, of sexual abuse I, I've encountered. Uh, how about yourself? Have you seen those, uh, others, anything that you want to touch on in particular? Yeah. And first, let me say that I agree with you. You know, I'll, I'll never understand the depths of the pain and the depths of the trauma um, that survivors of assault and trauma have experienced. Um, I'm, I've been grateful to be let into their worlds to some small degree as I've tried to assist them legally and kind of provide them options and paths forward. Um, but I, I don't really, I can't, you know, comprehend what that pain is. And, you know, over the course of working with survivors throughout the years, I've seen many of the things that you've mentioned. Um, I've met with clients who have these, you know, negative intrusive thoughts where as we're talking through a chronology of events, um, you can just sort of see a, a memory, right, come into their mind and just completely take over their thought process. Um, and that's all they can sort of think about, you know, for several minutes of, of that sort of terrible memory. And, um, you know, it's all encompassing. And as the attorney in that situation, you just sort of have to be patient and wait and, and really kind of proceed at, at their pace and, and kind of take your cues from the person who's across the table from you to see 
when and if they're comfortable moving forward in the conversation. Right, right. Because you have an important job to do, but at the same time, uh, if if the person's not not able to provide the information you need, you're not going to push them. You're going to kind of meet them where where they're at. And do you ever experience? Because another another sort of um, symptom of a trauma, if if a person is flooded with uh, a traumatic memory, is to dissociate. Sort of that's their their brain protecting them and kind of pulling them sort of almost out of their body and so that they're not actually experiencing the pain at, at the time. Have you, in addition to someone sort of breaking down crying and really getting upset when they're, when they're experiencing it, have, have you ever seen something like that where the person's kind of almost like the person's not there in the room with you any longer? Yeah, I've certainly seen a significant detachment in my conversations with survivors about the sort of episodes of trauma as they talk about them. It's almost as if they're talking about events that happened to another person when Mm -hmm. it's sort of a memory that they're bringing up about themselves. But there's a significant kind of emotional detachment from what happened, which makes sense. You know, as you said, you know, had some uh, training and sort of trauma informed lawyering and interviewing and um, recognizing that that distance, that emotional separation between the event and you know what I'm relaying to my attorney right now is important for survival, if nothing else. Right. Great point. All right. How about we jump into um, your area of expertise or an additional area of expertise, I should say, the legal rights of survivors. Um, do you want to, you know, I, I believe there is a relatively recent change in the law and uh, I don't know, where, where would you like to, to lead off with that? Yeah, I think we could talk about uh, sort of why statute of limitations exists when survivors of sexual trauma want to bring claims, either criminal or civil, um, and then kind of talk about how those might have changed. Does that sound all right? Yeah, that's great. So in law, if you want to bring a claim you generally don't have the whole course of your life to bring a legal claim. There's certain time periods in place for how long you have. And that might seem unfair to the person who's experienced some sort of you know, pain or trauma or casualty, but the reason for it is to add a little bit of certainty to society, right? So people can't you know, sue you 30 years from now for something that you did because you want to know that you can move on with your life, right? You want to know that you can... Um, you know, not have to worry about the car accident from 25 years ago because that was resolved one way or the other in the first five years after the car right, accident. Let's right. say. Yeah. And it's not just abuse cases. It's, it's every, almost all legal cases. There's statute of limitations. Yeah. And that's true for both criminal cases and civil cases. And I know that um, until I was in law school, I didn't fully appreciate the difference between those. So would it be all right if I took just a minute to talk about the difference between civil and sexual, I'm sorry, civil and criminal cases? Yeah, John, um, whatever you feel comfortable talking about, uh, uh, I, I think the listeners would really be interested in, in hearing about um, their rights, like you said, in civil cases, criminal cases. So yeah. that's sort of the, the main point is to provide the information so that if someone listening to this has experienced um, something that we're talking about, that person can make a better decision on whether or not to uh, contact you or another lawyer to to see what what remedies they might have. Fantastic. Well, you know, when I meet with survivors of sexual trauma, a frequent question is, should I bring a criminal case 
um, or should I bring a civil case? And so the difference, the big difference between those two is that a criminal case will result in penalties for the person who committed the offense. Those penalties could be fines that go to the government. Those penalties could be jail time. Those penalties could be a term of probation. Um, but in either case, it's all designed around sort of penalizing the person who did the wrong thing so that hopefully they learn their lesson and don't do it in the future. Very little of the criminal justice system is designed to do anything for the survivor. Um, there's you know few mechanisms in place to see that the survivor is um, you know cared for, is restored. Um, there's a growing trend of what they call victim compensation funds, where you can say, you know, so-and-so broke into my house and stole $25,000 worth of my things. Can I get my $25,000 back from the state? Um, you know, that's that's one thing. But when it's a much more intangible loss, um, you know, my childhood over the course of 15 years was robbed from me. That's not the sort of thing you can apply to the victim compensation fund for to get you know, sort of meaningful repayment for, you know, they might be able to help you with out-of-pocket expenses, counseling, um, maybe some, you know, vocational programs, but uh, sort of nothing life-altering. And so right. where people find that the criminal justice system is designed just to penalize the offender, they say, well, you know, what system could be designed to restore the survivor and open up new opportunities for the survivor? And that would be our civil justice system where instead of complaining to the police, you file a complaint against the person in court seeking money damages. Um, and that may sound cold or it may sound, you know, sort of money grubbing. But I think that, you know, whereas jail time and probation time is the currency of the criminal justice system, I mean, money, money really is the currency of justice outside of prison. Um, right. And so, you know, if a person is going to feel vindicated that what happened to them wasn't okay, it's probably because the other person is going to be ordered to, you know, pay them some amount of money, you know, and if the survivor maybe had their childhood robbed from them, if the survivor was denied opportunities in life because they weren't able to complete school or they weren't able to reach their full potential, perhaps money would open up doors to them that were never previously available, right? That might've been available otherwise, but for the you know behavior of the offender. Right. So I think that's an important distinction in those two systems. And then it's sort of worth, you know, segueing to the, the statute of limitations that traditionally you'd have a very short amount of time to bring a criminal case you know, to the police um, or to bring a civil action. Um, and so in this case, uh, in Pennsylvania, that time was was rather limited, right? You would have 10 years to bring a criminal case um, of sexual abuse in Pennsylvania, and you would only have until the age of 30 to bring a civil action seeking money damages if you're a survivor of sexual abuse. Um, and what legislatures around the country have been realizing as they interview more and more experts of trauma and hear stories of individuals who were you know victims of this trauma in their childhood they're realizing that it takes those survivors oftentimes years to speak out and i wonder in your practice do you do you sort of see that as well oh yeah um 
I would say in most scenarios, especially if the the trauma happened earlier in life, let's say as a as a teenager, and now the person's in their forties, you know, your brain is our brains are, are programmed to protect ourselves. Just like I was talking about earlier about dissociating, if we have a something traumatic happen to us, uh, and we don't kind of deal with it when it happens, deal with it being get get professional help and really try to work through what happened in your mind to um, get to a place. Uh, I mean, you're never going to be fully at peace with what happened, but get to a place where it's not affecting your functioning in a big way on a daily basis. Um, but typically what happens is our uh, person is not able to deal with it in the moment. It's so traumatic. And after not that long a period of time, the brain will sort of push the memories deep into our subconscious and kind of repress them. And they're still there, but they're not readily available in, in, you know, in our consciousness. And that's because if they are, we can't function. You know, if this trauma is like, it just happened and it's, it's stuck in your head, you're not going to be able to typically go to work and concentrate and, and be emotionally stable enough to live life to, to the fullest. But yeah, the downside is it's still there and it is actually still affecting a person in, in many ways, a lot of, many of which the person may not even know. Like um, I mentioned earlier about relationships, uh, intimacy, not sort of one, not, not realizing why it's difficult for a person to be, have intimacy with, with um, right. his or her, his or her partner. And I'm not just talking about sex, any kind of, you know, the full spectrum of intimacy um, that physical touch can, can trigger even the subconscious memories and make the person uncomfortable or scared or, or not even engage, try to engage in relationships because of, because of what happened. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen a completely different affect from survivors when I, you know, sort of first meet with them and this is something that they've, you know, maybe not spoken about to someone else yet, or maybe just Mm -hmm. to one other person. And it's still something that they're very much holding inside versus, you know, at the end of the case when, you know, they've had an outcome that is, you know, satisfying to them and, and they feel empowered maybe for the first time. They feel like new doors are open to them for the first time. And it's just, it's like a completely different, you know, source of light beaming into their life. It's really yeah. an incredible thing to see. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's challenging and any type of old memory that's difficult for us that we try to bring up years later, that can be a really challenging process. And this, I I can't think of uh, very many others that would be more difficult. And it's important for people to remember that it, it could get worse before it gets better. I mean, emotionally, because you're bringing up all these memories and, and that takes a lot of courage to do something like that, but ultimately uh, to work on these things and, 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 and get into a better emotional state. It's it's really what it is is an investment in in their future, because yeah, uh, yeah I mean we all want to be happy and and healthy. And if there are things that have happened in our lives that are holding us back, even something like, uh, you know, you were bullied as a kid, and then as you and you never really learned how to deal with that, and those feelings remained inside you, and now you're an adult, and you know a professional and your supervisor is, uh, has a real toxic personality and is like a screamer. It it could, it'll resurrect and trigger a lot of those feelings that you had as a, as a child. And you might, 
uh, overreact more than let's say the the average person, you know, starts screaming back at the person. Whereas maybe if you didn't have that childhood experience, or if you did have that experience, but you're able to work through it, you'd be able to react better to a, a difficult experience later in life. So I think there's, I just bring up that example to say that there's, there's parallels in all traumatic memories uh, or traumatic exper- experiences that are now memories that uh, we can all work th- do our best to work through to be in a better place now absolutely and you know along those lines i wanted to ask you if you find to be the case in your profession of sort of counseling and therapy the same thing that i find when i meet with survivors of sexual trauma that often there's two big reasons that they don't want to address this in a sort of therapy setting or in a legal setting. Um, and I think the first of those reasons is that they it's an uncomfortable thing to talk about. It's an uncomfortable memory to bring up, and it just brings up a lot of pain. Um, and the second piece of that, I think, is this belief that there's no use in bringing it up because I simply have no evidence of it, and so who's going to believe me? Do you, do you see those same two kind of reservations? Yeah, absolutely. In just just about every every case, it's um, it's painful. It's horrible, and it's not just sort of working on it through therapy. It's uh, that next step, which uh, you you've touched on, is working on it with you, uh, because it's it's one thing to think about it, talk about it with a therapist, talk about it with friends or a partner or or whomever, and it's quite another thing to you know bring a legal case, uh, which those are public filings and maybe you're testifying in court or in depositions and you know that's and and you have to maybe face your the person you're accusing of uh, who maybe you haven't seen in years you know let's say if something happened to you in college and and now it's 10 years later and you've established yourself in your life maybe you have a, a young child and feel as though i don't want to put put my family through this and all of those reservations, but sort of what's the point? Sure. Um, because in a legal system, I mean, uh, it's almost never, maybe never a done deal, a sure thing. You just never know what can happen. So there's always, uh, <clears throat> I mean, I wasn't a litigator, but I, I would think that there's always some percentage of risks that you're not going to win, that there's no guarantee that you're going to win the case. So oh, that's absolutely. sort of, yeah, uh, that's, you know, the client uh, or person has to weigh that. Well, if there's a 10% chance that I'm not going to win, is it worth everything I'm going to have to go through for two years or however long the case is going to be and that trauma? And is the person going to, you know, do this or do that? Am I going to be in the newspaper or w- whatever it is? I, I, I know that sure. none of this, I, no, I don't know if those any are, of this will those be are, the case. But. <laughs> those, those are all things I talk with my clients about. You know, if you want to move forward with this, like you have to recognize that, you know, these will be public filings, just as you said. And, you know, you may be testifying just a few feet away from the person who did this to you. Your family is likely to be involved. You know, your kids might get asked on the playground about this, you know, and they, they have to sort of weigh those things. Um, but I do want to take just a second, if I can, to kind of myth bust around an idea that I hear both in these circles, you know, when talking with survivors and in a lot of other sort of legal circles from potential clients where they say, you know, I don't have any evidence and so I'm sure we won't succeed. And I want to bust that 
on both the criminal justice front and also in the sort of realm of civil justice and these, you know, kind of money damage cases that we're talking about. And so in the criminal justice side of things, um, in cases of sexual assault, when someone is facing down potential jail time, you know, as a result of their conduct, one of the instructions that juries are read before the jury goes out to deliberate is that in cases of sexual assault, because evidence is often so difficult to come by, if the jury believes the testimony of the survivor, they don't need any other evidence to convict. Really? They can convict the defendant who's accused of these crimes just on the words of the survivor alone if they believe that survivor is telling the truth. And I think a lot of people don't know that. That's a great point because, you know, what is the physical evidence that would happen if something, if, if someone was assaulted, they would go to the ER, they would do tests, DNA evidence. And, you know, that's best case scenario. Best um, case. Yeah. But, you know, that doesn't happen all the time or, or, or maybe hardly at all. So you're talking years later. You're right. There is no f- physical, likely no physical evidence. Yeah. So then, you know, we talk about the civil justice side. Um, The standard of evidence is even lower on the civil justice side. Uh, You know, instead of having to prove your case beyond a reasonable doubt, you just have to prove that it's more likely than not that the thing occurred. Um, That's why so many civil cases settle out of court because, you know, people are afraid that you'll be able to, you know, prove that it's more likely than not that this thing occurred. Mm-hmm. Um, and in one of, you know, my cases with a client who I think had a sort of fantastic transformation from the beginning of the case to the end of the case, uh, he came in talking about sexual assault that he suffered about 30 years ago. And as you can imagine, there was absolutely no evidence. I mean, just nothing, no documents, no clothing, nothing, not even any witnesses. No one could be helpful to his case. And so my recommendation was, why don't you sit down and write about what happened? Write about your relationship. Write mm-hmm. about the big picture. Write about the specifics. And so he did that. And he brought it to me and I looked at the sort of painful memories that he was able to dig up. And I said, that's great. Keep writing. So he went back and he kept writing and he got some more details and some more specific instances and he came back and said, that's awesome keep going. And I think, you know, by the time he had finished writing, you know, we had 10 or 15 pages of sort of detailed, challenging, really, really challenging memories. I, you know, I can't imagine how, how difficult that was for him to sit down and sort of parse through those. But guess what was exhibits A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H to my complaint that I sent the offender was all of those writings, all those journal entries saying, here's the specifics of what happened. Here's the inescapable truth you know to be the case that you can't get out from under. And don't you know, that case settled before we ever had to litigate it. Wow. No, you did a really good technique there because a lot of times if we're talking about something that happened a long time ago, because it's kind of parts of it are repressed, the more we talk about it, or in this case, write about it, it it'll trigger memories and details that that come up. So that was a great exercise, obviously, for the for the the outcome of the case. But um, yeah, that's great, John. So anything else that you want to touch on? 
Yeah, we sort of got sidetracked a little bit when talking about statute of limitations. And so we were saying that they were, you know, uh, sort of a short time window to bring your claim. And the great news for survivors of sexual trauma is that in late 2019, Pennsylvania's governor, Governor Wolf, signed into law three different bills that taken together really eliminate the statute of limitations for criminal charges. So you can bring charges to the police of sexual abuse at any time in your life now. And you can file a civil claim for money damages until you're 55 years old. So it's another 25 years on top of what it was. Um, Okay. And, you know, this might be relevant to your practice. It also creates a fund for survivors to receive counseling. So if you come forward and say, I was a victim of, you know, sexual trauma years ago, but I'd love to go to counseling and I just can't afford it, that the state of Pennsylvania now has a, you know, small reserve to help you do that. That's amazing. That, that is so forward thinking, um, that kind of a, kind of a resource because, you know, finances can be a barrier to, to anyone depending on what, what they're looking to do. But as far as getting treatment for, it's not just really treatment for what happened. It's also treatment for the process of bringing this case and all of the uh, emotions that that person's uh, going to be dealing with during the course of the case. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think that there's some reservation probably about speaking with lawyers generally about these kinds of things. Um, you know, I think that there's a concern that lawyers, you know, may not be trauma informed or, you know, may not have the vocabulary to talk about these things. And that's a real concern. Um, and probably also some concern that, you know, once I bring this to a lawyer, there's no stopping it. You know, that's going to be, it's going to be public the next day. And I just think it's important that survivors know that they are in charge of whether there's a case and then if there's a case, how far it goes. They remain in the driver's seat at all times. And right. that survivors should make sure they find an attorney who's telling them that, that they determine when and where to say no, when and where to stop, and how far things progress. Um, and it's up to the attorney to listen to their client and ask for direction every step of the way. And then if the client says, this is all the further I want to go, that's all the further they go. That's a great point. I mean, you're an advocate for them. You're not the person making the decisions. You weigh the risk. You think about the the likelihood of, of winning and lay it all out. And then the person decides. And I like also what you said about just because you make a decision right now to bring the case doesn't mean that's how it's going to be forever If if, if you decide if they make an offer, you reject it, but then sometime later you decide, you know what, I want, I just want this to be over and that, that offer is good enough for me. You could do that. Yeah. Rich, let me ask you as a therapist, if a client was working with an attorney on a sexual assault case and the attorney needed to reach out to a therapist, uh, to basically have someone for their client, you know, to sort of meet with, to work on that healing from a mental health perspective. Is that something that you could do kind of in tandem with a lawyer while the client is receiving legal services on one side and then sort of therapeutic services on the other? Yeah, absolutely. Um, especially my background as an attorney, um, I think I would be a good sort of bridge between both worlds. And, you know, obviously the client would have to sign a, a HIPAA consent form so that the the lawyer and the therapist can talk to each other. And, and, you know, 
it could be limited on what what they could talk about. It's totally up up to the person, just like we were saying earlier, up to the case. But if I, I think it would be an important partnership because what the client is uncovering in therapy would definitely help the case, and the lawyer, uh, you know, could be informed of these new. I mean, the facts are always there. It's just sort of the remembering of of the facts and details, like the uh, the client you were talking about earlier, who was journaling and new new memories were coming to light uh, over and over. And yeah. I think you know the the lawyer could also give the therapist a heads up on what's coming up. Like, hey, you know, next month we're, we're going to have a pretty tough deposition. Uh, our client's going to be deposed by opposing counsel. This particular opposing counsel is pretty aggressive. And um, I think it would be good if the client's up to it to prepare emotionally for that, right? Because it's sort of the two piece of preparation. There's your preparation as the legal counsel, like, you know, these are the questions you'll likely be asked and, you know, let's go over, you know, prepare yourself in that regard, but also emotionally prepare yourself. If you're sitting there and someone asks that difficult question, it, it, if you're able to prepare ahead of time, it's not going to likely be as shocking or hit, hitting you as hard because you mm-hmm. you already know it's going to going to happen. I'm sure it'll still be emotional. So right. I, I think it's, you know, it could help. The legal case could be the driving force for the person to really work on these emotions. And the work on these emotions could lead to significant improvements of the quality of the legal case. Yeah. And can you think of a sort of principle of, you know, psychotherapy that um, kind of speaks to the way in which a monetary result could result in kind of healing of one's mental health? Yeah. Well, I guess you could say, I mean, the word that comes to mind is, is closure. It's, you know, like you said earlier, they're never going to fully be made whole because it is an intangible. It's not like you sold, you stole my guitar. It was worth a thousand dollars. You gave me a thousand dollars. I bought a new guitar. Um, and even with that, you might have emotional attachment to that particular guitar. But really when we're talking about this, these types of crimes, there isn't a, a one-to-one perfect relationship, but I think there is from the people I've worked with there. Um, and just people I not necessarily were clients, but just people I know and through my training and things like that, there is value in, uh, the criminal case. There is value in the civil case and it's, it's justice feeling as though you, you had your say because you've been silent or forced to be silent in some ways for so long, maybe for years and scared and ashamed that you were holding this in and ashamed that it happened. There's a lot of blaming oneself that, that goes on. It's my fault. If I didn't, maybe if I didn't just go to the bar that night, you know, what if I stayed home, this wouldn't have happened, even though Mm. you didn't do anything wrong. You went out with friends and it's just, there is a horrible person who did a horrible thing to you. And so if you're able to, uh, the closure piece of it is almost like the, the, the logistical thing that happened or the concrete thing that happened 
maybe there's some closure with that and that could give benefit to um, the emotional side of it that you feel as though you stood up for yourself you you did something frankly brave incredibly brave that uh, I you know I can't imagine what that would be like to just stand up there and say you did this to me and and uh, you know uh, so it, it could be an incredibly it, it's like that it's it's that two twofold it's can have incredible benefits for you but also be incredibly difficult at the same time so um, yeah and i love the the picture that you painted of the sort of therapist and lawyer working in tandem kind of keeping one another informed to best support the survivor who's going through basically that gauntlet during that time um you know and having all those challenges sort of presented after one another to to have that team of professionals kind of working with them. That's, that's a really awesome thing to think about along those lines. I'm curious, do you have any, um, sort of reservations about if the, if the client told you that, you know, kind of gave you permission to testify on their behalf, would there be any, um, reason that you couldn't, you know, go to court eventually and potentially, uh, testify about, you know, how that, survivor has maybe grown over the course of therapy as a result of their meetings with you? Yeah. I mean, there's nothing, there would be nothing stopping me from doing that as long as, or any therapist, I should say to just to make it more general, as long as the the client signs a, a HIPAA form, a consent release form that, you know, and I would say it would be important for the therapist to, and the lawyer to go over, what do you want to actually talk about? Because, you know, the goal is not to go up there and like read the progress notes that I've for every session that I've done for the year that we've been working together. You really want to just like I'm sure with the survivor's testimony or anyone else, you want to distill it down to the key points and, um, you know, think about uh, the strategy involved and things like that. So it's, you know, I've seen it in different ways. Some, I think it's more common for a therapist to provide something like a, a letter that to the court uh, that details sort of a an overview of the work that they've done together, and and in some cases there there is testimony that happens as well. So it really depends on the individual therapist, the individual client, the lawyer. Ultimately, what what would each person be comfortable with, and um, what would be in the best interest of the, of the case as well. Certainly. And, you know, I bring that up just because that is, um, you know, can be an additional form of evidence, especially for cases, you know, years and years old, and there's no sort of physical evidence. So maybe the person journals and has some writings, but maybe they also, as you said, get a report from their therapist that's given to the court that says, hey, here's my experience with this person. Here's what they've said. And in fact, that case that I referenced with the gentleman who had done a lot of writing, he did have a report from his therapist that I think moved the needle significantly. Um, in the ways that it talked about, you know, the, um, you know, way that he presented his story and how it had so much of like indicia of reliability. Um, it gave, you know, anyone who was reading it more of a reason to believe that what was written had actually occurred as tragic yeah. as it was. That's great. Yeah. It's a, it's an, you know, it's a medical professional and expert who's, um, you know, doesn't have any, uh, not really have any, 
it's really they're trying to give objective evidence of you know what we talked about and the th- and the observations and things like that. So sure, it's anything like that can definitely add to the case. Just like I would think, just like physical evidence as well, if they go to a medical professional. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, this has been this has been really great, John. I uh, I appreciate your time and your expertise. Uh, I really enjoyed speaking with you as well. And what types of services do you offer for survivors? And how could they someone reach you if they wanted to, you know, learn more? Yeah. So I think it's important that survivors just know what their options are, know what possibilities are available to them. And the best way to do that is just by talking with a lawyer. And most lawyers should be willing to give a free consultation around this kind of an issue. Um, I know I certainly do. And if a survivor wanted to reach out to me, they could call my desk phone directly at 484-412-0617. And I'd be happy to speak with them and hear about, you know, um, what sort of options they're looking for, let them know what options are available, um, and just give them sort of a, a lay of the legal landscape. Um, and so that they can be as informed as possible going forward and, you know, whatever decision they ultimately make, it's completely up to them and I support them in whatever they want to do. Um, but at least I want to make sure that they're informed of, of what their options are. That sounds great. All right. So, well, ag- again, John, thanks so much for being here. Really enjoyed the conversation and uh, I wish you the best. Rich, thank you. It's been a pleasure uh, talking about this. I'm so grateful that you're invested in supporting survivors in this way as well and uh, really look forward to working with you in the coming years. Sounds good. Take care. Okay. Well, that's it for this podcast episode. Please subscribe rate and comment, and share on social media and otherwise. Visit richlombino.com to learn more about my counseling practice, see how to contact me, connect with me on social media, and read my blog and ebooks to learn about other topics. Most importantly, if you or someone you know are looking for more support, I'm here for you. Look forward to you joining me for other podcast episodes. Take care and be